Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Nico Franks. We hope you're safe and well, staying positive and testing negative. Today, we hear from Cameron Harland, Chief Executive at New Zealand On Air, the funding body that invests millions of Kiwi dollars in the local media each year, and Clive Spink, CEO at Pukeko Pictures, the New Zealand production company with close links to China. I visited both Cameron and Clive in their respective offices in Wellington, New Zealand, to talk about the extent to which international audiences factor into their work and their efforts to take Kiwi stories and storytellers to the world. NZ On Air has an annual budget of around 190 million Kiwi dollars. That's about 140 million US dollars, or 98 million pounds, to spend on different types of public media, including local scripted and factual content that reflects and develops New Zealand culture. Cameron Harland became CEO of the funding body in March 2020, spending four days in the office before lockdown sent him home. Since then, the Contestable Fund has played a key role in getting the country's production sector back on its feet. I spoke to Cameron last month and began by asking him what are the biggest challenges that he's facing at the moment. Yeah, a number of challenges actually. So we're definitely busier than ever. Um, A lot of that has to do with um, the administration of additional funds that that we were, were given in response to COVID. I think what we've also seen is New Zealand rebound incredibly quickly from COVID and and obviously we're talking about that in relation to just the way that we are able to live our lives incredibly normally here compared to most of the other parts of the world. What that's meant of course is that a lot of the international productions that we honestly assumed would be unlikely to come back sort of anytime soon uh, have managed to get back and up and running really quickly. Uh, obviously that's massively positive for the economy because that's a whole bunch of of kind of export-related work that is happening um, on our shores. Um, But that goes hand-in-hand with production activity that's sort of been funded, whether it be by us or the Film Commission or others. So, yeah, we are are definitely seeing a significant amount of production activity and with that the challenges of workforce, finding quality people to, to fill roles. The more that we talk to the sector, and obviously you would expect us to do that a lot, the more we are, are watchful and mindful of that. So yes, it is buoyant at the moment, but you know we need to keep an eye on that and ensure that there is sort of a good pipeline of work continuing, whether that be the international work coming in, which is really far more in our sister agency, the Film Commission's remit, uh, or local production activity. In terms of where NZ On Air fits in to the process of a show being greenlit, and the camera's starting to roll. Do you defer to the commissioners or do you take a kind of an element of an editorial stance about what you are going to fund? So absolutely no editorial stance whatsoever. Um, We uh, have a very clear act that uh, makes it very clear that that is not our role. Um, In fact, I would say that that is possibly one of the major reasons why we've been entrusted with the journalism funding because we are not allowed to engage in any form of editorial. Uh, so yes, you're absolutely right. We rely on on commissioners. So the way that we work is very much driven by the platforms. So, you know, traditionally they were the linear platforms, the TVNZs, Three, Sky Prime, um, and in recent times we're seeing more sort of digital platforms coming to the fore as well. Um, so yeah, the the way that it works really is that a a, a producer or production company or a you know content creator will effectively pitch their ideas to those platforms. And, and they need the platform support before they can then come to us for funding. And of course, the logic behind that is not only 
uh, the editorial requirements of, of that content being sort of overseen by someone that certainly can't be us, uh, but also the path to audience. So, you know, I guess if we look at it in a similar way with, with film, um, you know, the Film Commission wouldn't fund a film without a distributor attached, someone that can ensure that the film actually plays to an audience. So uh, that's sort of a key part of our sort of funding process, if you like. So if, if, I, if I look at it, I would say it's very much uh, sort of us as the funder, the platform and and the kind of the producer, producing company as sort of the three legs of the stool. So in terms of a lot of the content that's being made in New Zealand at the moment, a lot of it is designed to grow the, the reach of New Zealand Aotearoa stories internationally with a, a fund specifically for that, for um, that's investing in a lot, lot, lot of dramas, for example. To what extent do you want to see local producers here pushing for international audiences versus content that zeroes in on, on, on New Zealand audiences and is very local and feels very local? Look, our, our remit has always been very much about delivering to local audiences. That's entirely what we care about, really. Um, and that, of course, isn't to say that we aren't delighted when we hear of, 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 of shows that we've funded that, that make overseas sales. And that does happen. But in truth, really, our, our kind of single focus is on the delivery to those, those audiences that we're kind of required to, to, be, to sort of bear in mind. To be fair, I think that there has been in the past um, sort of a little bit of a view that maybe there's a bit of a gap that um, the Film Commission upstairs, our sister agency, um, certainly has sort of international aspirations for the films that they fund, as well as local ones. And in the in the TV sort of space, that's perhaps been slightly less so, although of course um, we have uh, an incentive regime here, the Screen Production Grant, which again is administered by the NZFC, that, that is, is available for both film and TV production. Uh, and that really has, as, as, as an aspiration, sort of delivery uh, of kind of local stories to an international audience, so export, um, you know, exporting our stories. I touched on before to Puna Kairangi, which is the premium production fund, which was a, a sort of a COVID response allocation. And that's very much um, at its heart a, a fund that is certainly about New Zealand stories, but very clearly with a with an aspiration of delivering up to international audiences uh, so you know an exciting initiative uh, and one that we are um, sort of working our way through now so that fund is actively looking for maori stories um, and other stories that represent new zealand Aotearoa's really diverse culture there's a big conversation around storytelling sovereignty and ensuring that those stories are definitely being told by Maori storytellers, if it's a Maori story, for example, do you have any systems in place to ensure that happens? Uh, yeah, so we do, um, and um, in all honesty, I think that uh, you're right. Uh, it is um, it is a really important and a pretty significant conversation that's happening in the sector right now. Um, so yes, we do have uh, you know a view around um, the idea of having you know core and key fundamental creatives uh, involved in the telling of stories um, being appropriate for, for that story. It's an issue that I think we really are going to need to kind of engage in pretty significantly. Um, we've had, as an example, I mean, if I, if I look at the week that I've had um, just this week as a, as a small example, um, we have already had a conversation with our sister 
agencies, funding agencies, and one of our key platforms in relation to this issue. Um, I also have a meeting with some senior uh, Pacifica producers on Friday to talk about a similar issue in relation to those producers and audiences. So um, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely live. Uh, it's a really, really important thing to get right. Tamangai Pahu is, is, as I say, our sister agency. They um, have fund, funds like us available for content. So they, they fund uh, screen music and platform content um, just like we do, uh, very much uh, with a focus on reo and, and, and language outcomes. Um, I've formed a really strong relationship with Larry Parr, the, the CEO in, in, in there. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean they're effectively a very, very similar agency to, to us uh, and all that they do really. We um, are incredibly grateful for uh, Tamangai Pahu's involvement in that fund and, and very much, uh, very much in, in relation to the productions that we have funded. So sort of greater than 50% of the production funding for the first round has gone to uh, you know, Māori stories but also um, an allocation of development. Um, because I think part of this is also about how do we develop more stories? How do we develop more storytellers and creators and grow the sector to ensure that we have uh, all the talent and the voices available to us to ensure that, that the wonderful stories are told by the right people. Uh, so look, it's, it is, it's very much front of mind for us, as it is for, um, as I say, our sister agencies. Um, and I think that actually that's, that's where the sector is looking. I think they're looking for the agencies to come together around this. Um, but I think the agencies are also looking to the sector. Um, you know, actually, we, we're really keen to understand what, what the sector believes should be done. Uh, because in truth, we can't, create, we can't create all of these strategies and kind of ideas from our, our ivory tower in Wellington. Um, we need to understand what the sector sort of wants and, and, and actually how to kind of bring it alive in a pragmatic way. And there was a fairly recent funding round focused on content for youth audiences and children, and a lot of that content was short form. How challenging is it when you're dealing with six by one minute formats rather than six times 30 minutes, which I suppose you're a bit more used to? So shows for Instagram, for example. We're really excited by, by that funding round. It's sort of an experiment to a certain extent. The, the issue the world over, though, of course, is the, you know, the level of fragmentation of audiences, um, and in particular certain audiences. So we've got a number of audiences in this country that are kind of moving away from linear, whether that be Asian audiences or indeed youth. So um, we took a view that we wanted to try something out with that, with that funding round. We pulled in a couple of great young sort of YouTube, YouTuber, TikToker um, kind of people. I'm showing my age here, but, um, you know, some really, some really, really influential and knowledgeable people in the space. So again, you know, it would be wrong for me to be involved in selecting the content that, that we funded here because I'm not anywhere, anywhere near the, um, the right kind of age age bracket. Um, but yeah, I mean, interestingly, uh, from what I gather from the panel conversations, um, you know, there was definitely a lot of kind of pushback around um, time lengths, you know, like actually they need to be short. That's what, you know, that's what their youth are into and watching. And of course, we're also very much about delivering important kind of public media. So, so it's, it's not, there's no point in us just funding stuff that would be made by a TikToker or a YouTuber now. That's not actually what our remit is. So, um, yeah, we're really excited about that 
you know, the content that we're about to fund. It's going to be really interesting for us to to see really right the way through that process what, what ends up happening. So um, a number of them actually do have um, what we might call traditional platforms attached, but those traditional platforms are also um, distributing the, the content in other ways, which is really exciting. For us, understanding measurement, so actually seeing how many people do engage. And of course, as I said earlier, our remit really is local audiences, and yet most of the platforms that, that we're talking about here are global ones. So obviously it'll be great to get a sense of what the total number of people you know, that engaged in the content looks like. But for us, it's also understanding you know, what, what local audiences gravitated to. Uh, there's another little component, which again, we're really excited about, which is the idea that the, you know, the producers of this content can, can market it in the way that they believe is the best way to, to attract an audience. How do you engage with audiences that aren't sort of going to the traditional places that they used to? So prior to NZ On Air, you had experience working with uh, Peter Jackson, running his post-production studio in Wellington. So you obviously have first-hand experience of just how globally successful those franchises were. To what extent do you want to see the future of New Zealand's screen sector be built on similar feature films and projects like that? Because we are seeing lots of Hollywood productions filmed here, so service work that, that obviously brings a lot to the, to the local economy versus original production and uh, original IP. Great question. Um, and look, I'm, I'm obviously speaking sort of less uh, as the sea of New Zealand on air because, of course, as I've said, I think a few times, um, you know, our remit is very much about delivery of local content um, to local audiences. Um, so I, I guess this is more of a kind of, um, yeah, given my background in the, fil- in the film industry and, and having sort of seen both sides. Um, look, I, I mean, I think... And obviously this is very much a, a question that you should probably be asking you know, our sister agency upstairs, New Zealand Film Commission, because they do administer both the international and the local versions of our screen production grant. I don't think anyone would disagree that we, we, we should have a balance, right? So um, the size and scale of some of the production activity that's happening at the moment in this country, whether it be sort of Avatar or Lord of the Rings or, or various other productions, uh, brings in um, really significant export dollars for for the country. Uh, it it grows the sector. It pays for a huge amount of of crew and and cast. So uh, on 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 just about every level, it's a fantastic thing. And you're you're right to say, and the tourism benefits that that be, you know come from the fact that you're seeing our locations on screens um, all over the world is is massively significant. Um, but, but in truth, yes. I mean, I think that what we also want to see is local, local stories, local producers, local you know, crew and, and creators uh, telling great New Zealand stories to the world uh, and accessing you know, the incentives that allow them to do that. Um, so I, I think it's, it's, as is often the case with any kind of thing, it's, it's where, where do we believe the balance should be I've heard various kind of conversations in recent times uh, and certainly articles written about, um, you know, why are we paying all this money to Jeff Bezos? And of course, it's not really going to him, I'm sure. But nevertheless, why are we paying, you know, incentives to the likes of Amazon? And in, tr- and in truth, I guess I've always taken a really simplistic view that is to say, but for the incentives, they wouldn't come, 
right? Because incentives are just a thing, unfortunately. Whether we like them or not, they are. So I'm sure that Amazon looked at um, the UK and and or Ireland, places like that, you know, Game of Thrones. Um, They certainly, no doubt, would have looked at some of the states in the US and Australia and various other parts of the world that offer incentives. And, you know, so without them, we wouldn't have got the, the, the size and scale of that production. And the size and scale of that production is really, really significant in terms of what it's bringing into the country. And I think the thing about production activity is that it is really, really broad in what it actually delivers. So, you know, it's, yes, of course, it's the stages that they may shoot in. Um, and yes, of course, it's the, it's the crew that work on the show, but it's also, you know, the rental vans that, by the way, are probably not being used very much at the moment for, because our borders are kind of shut for tourism. Uh, it's hotel nights potentially, or you know the local Bunnings or Mitre Ten that that supplies all the, you know the gear for building the sets and and all of those things. So so it's a really really broad and significant kind of contributor to the economy. Um, so yeah, possibly a long-winded sort of way of saying um, look, find a balance. I, I in all honesty, and I guess maybe I'm biased because of the role I'm in now. I, I would really love to see more. New Zealand storytellers telling New Zealand stories for global audiences. Um, and I, I'd like to think that there is sort of some kind of a, a view or a strategy that says that over time we want to kind of move, perhaps move the dial a little bit more towards that than the other. Um, but as I say, I mean, I'm possibly speaking out of turn. And can a project like Lord of the Rings that's with Amazon or say Netflix wanted to commission a, a New Zealand original, can those projects access NZ on air funding? Unfortunately, if a production wants to access a screen production grant, um, they can't also access NZ on air baseline funding unless it's a children's or an animated show, which is a, a slightly strange anomaly, um, which is different to film. So, so if you are looking to make a local film here, you can access the Film Commission baseline funds, if you like, as well as the Screen Production Grant. Um, the exception to that is to Puna Kairangi, so the, the fund that we're administering at the moment. So that has, that has a carve-out that does allow for productions to come in and access a level of our funding and also Screen Production Grant and, and other foreign money. Um, and, and look, that's the trick. You know, it's, it's finding the various pots that kind of bring together the financing plan that ensures that you have you know, the, the size and scale of the budget that you need to, to deliver the story that you want to tell. Cameron Harland. New Zealand's children's TV sector is mostly made up of small and micro producers, but among its biggest players are Pukeko Pictures, the Wellington-based company behind the Wat Wats one of New Zealand's most successful kids' TV properties. The company was formed in 2008 by Sir Richard Taylor, Tanya Roger and Martin Bainton, with a connection to the five-time Academy Award-winning concept design and physical effects facility, Weta Workshop. Clive Spink became CEO at The Producer in 2015, and since then the company's links with China have grown, with international financing and relationships key to getting programming made, alongside funding from the likes of NZ On Air. I visited Pukeko's offices in Wellington and asked Clive to sum up the health of the local kids' TV industry for me. I think the uh, 
kids sector it, it is um, it is a hard industry to be in we have to look globally to to basically be able to exist um, you know we're coming from a, a small market we uh, we are very lucky in that we have um, good screen incentives as a as a business but we um, we don't have the sort of broadcaster support that a lot of other places around the world have. Um, you know, we our, our content support comes through incentives as opposed to broadcasters. Uh, we, we have to exist on the, on the back of the screen incentives that we have in place and, um, and really getting out and, and uh, pulling things together through international finance and um, relationships and 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 to be honest in the kids business it's not just all, all about the TV it's it's about all the ancillary products that you can drive off it as well so so there needs to be quite a diverse revenue portfolio to to sustain um, the business one of the key things that we are looking at as a small company at the sort of bottom of the world is how do we find what we call a coalition of the willing and, and um, networks of partners that uh, that we can sort of bring, uh, you know, and collaborate, bring different um, different views and 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 also just, uh, you know, be able to um, you know, bring different markets and perspectives to, to the place so you know that's that's been relatively hard with COVID and and a sort of an inability to travel I mean I was probably doing up to 19 long-haul flights a year um, sort of pre-COVID but I think a lot of that investment and time and energy around the world and now with people not being able to travel we're finding that that uh, you know, you, you get introduced through networks, through networks, and, and actually everyone is looking to, to, to reach out and collaborate with good people all around the world. So the, the world's a pretty small place in the kids industry. And in the Pakeco offices, we've got clocks showing the times of LA, New York, London, and Beijing in China. And China in particular has been a really important territory for your business. So tell me about your relationship with, with Chinese companies. Yeah, we um, we recognise New, Ze- New Zealand has uh, had uh, quite a, um, a leading relationship with China. Uh, New Zealand had the first free trade agreement with China, and uh, one of our principals, Richard, had spent um, a lot of time on the ground in China building relationships. So <clears throat> probably five years ago, we um, we were looking to how we could. Um, get at what competitive advantages we had as a company through our relationships and um, recognize that China as a market uh, was a big market and and that through some of our relationships and our standing at a country level we actually had some unique selling propositions so that's uh, so ended up packing packing a suitcase and going and looking for the right um, sorts of partners in China. And, um, you know, that's uh, a, a 
practice that takes time and um, you, you know you need to build the relationships and the trust but we we over over probably 18 months found um, some great partners up there we um, went from developing a, um, a relationship to a, a shareholding relationship multiple projects we have completed a, the, the first preschool co-production um, project with China, signed off as official Chinese co-production and therefore local content in China and, and local content in New Zealand and then expanded that to um, doing the first three-way co-production which is a, um, a project <coughs> between ourselves and some Canadian partners as well as Chinese partners. And you work in lots of different disciplines in, in kids' content, so animation, live action, CGI. When you're approaching a project, how do you determine what technology uh, and style you're going to use? Yeah, for us, we, we have a, an approach to our IP, which we call IPX, which is very much the 360 approach um, that we take. And so when, when because we recognise that it's really important to be able to um, commercialise the IP in different channels, so we're, we're working extensively with new gaming tech that enables us to do fast turnaround for marketing assets and we're just so we're very so we try and build all of that thinking into how we set things up from day one so that we don't potentially limit ourselves and trying to retrofit things down the track um, you know, as, a, as an example, we have an IP at the moment that we are taking out to the, to the world. We have conceived a, a TV show for, for the IP, but we probably will launch this IP as a collectible plush toy. Um, and so we've done um, toy design, toy development, uh, play pattern, um, but it's underpinned by story, character, um, and and so in success, uh, we um, we would we would obviously look at how we would roll that IP out across multiple um, platforms. And your work in China that's involved a lot of physical entertainment spaces, um, as well as things involving mixed media. How is the pandemic affecting those areas of kids' entertainment? We had a 10,000 square metre children's playland in Wuhan, which, um, which uh, you know, was obviously shut down because of the, um, with the, the pandemic, but, um, uh, you know, has, has subsequently reopened. Um, it's probably been, uh, we, we also launched with some partners in Canada, uh, the first mixed reality um, visitor attraction using the Magic Leap headset um, in Toronto at the Stax um, shopping mall. Uh, so there probably, with COVID, there's probably been, well, there definitely has been an impact on on physical and health and safety and people. So so I think um, the visitor attraction industry has, has 
clearly suffered and and um and it'll be interesting to watch how that comes back over the next um little while i think uh the because again people may not be able to travel as extensively i think uh looking for ways to engage in location-based experiences at home or or change their environment at home is probably something that is um is is still going to continue and and a lot of it has to do with how accessible the hardware is and um and really how that then gets monetized from your perspective you mentioned all the long-haul flights that you used to take do you think you'll revert back to that number of flights or and would you want to from a kind of health and safety perspective or an environmental perspective how do you see your kind of the way you do business as we hopefully you know touching wood here see the light at the end of the tunnel of the pandemic uh, in different countries how do you see things returning to be honest i don't, i don't see it going back to um how it was i i actually think that um that this is likely to be a cyclical thing um, that uh, we will probably find that there are different pandemics that happen on a on on a timeline going forward so so um, I've thoroughly relished the opportunity to um, to sort of be you know able to um, be based in New Zealand, which you know we're we're very blessed in terms of having a you know sort of a effectively a big moat around us that <clears throat> that has kept uh, COVID at bay um, to a degree. But um, I think uh, you know so I still I, I believe that down the track we will be travelling. I just don't think it'll be the same sort of. Um, Travel. I think you know the, there's still definitely a need to um, connect, and and you can't beat connection, uh, you know, sort of face to face and and building real relationships. I think, I think though it's it's been interesting for me um, the level of engagement and the accessibility that we've had to people during COVID. Uh, you know through different media like Zoom has uh, because everyone has been in that same situation everyone's uh, looking at how they connect and um, so I think you know the 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 interesting thing for me will be if um, if you know say the rest of the world opens up more than New Zealand because New Zealand has been able to manage itself well from a COVID <clears throat> point of view I think uh you know, do we get a little bit left and out because we're, you know, people are, are back to engaging face to face, and we're still wanting to engage via Zoom. So, so I think that that's for me is uh, something that'll be interesting to see how that that plays out. But I think um, I think you know for the good of the planet and and you know I know 19 long haul flights a year is pretty taxing on the body as well. So so I. You know, I've certainly got a lot healthier since uh, COVID, ironically, because, uh, you know, I've been able to exercise and and um, and do those sort of things. So as opposed to sort of always being on a plane. This part of Wellington has also got the nickname Wellywood. 
What do you think needs to happen to ensure that the service work that is coming here um, is sustainable and also is beneficial kind of to the long-term success of Kiwi companies and Kiwi creatives? You know, if I look at uh, things like Thunderbirds Are Go, for, for us, for example, we, um, we have enjoyed enormous uh, recognition globally from the work that we did on that and um, so I think the opportunity for people to get credits and uh, have the opportunity to work on amazing projects with international partners you know the the reality is that the screen incentives drive huge amount of um, economic benefit in both the film industry but also a range of ancillary um, businesses. I think I think it's really just the whole opportunity to get um, the craft and the work and uh, people onto a global stage that you know that's that, that's the real benefit that I see. Clive Spink. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow, but in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and on social media. Thanks for listening.